Welcome to, uh, to our follow-up panel to the awarding of the Nyan Prize Theodore White Lecture. Um, Rachel Maddow is not able to be with us this morning, but I'm very glad to say that Bill Greider is. Um, and uh, we are very happy also to have you. I'm Alex Jones, director of the Jones Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. Um, those of you who were there last night, and I think that is most of you, know that last night we had two very, very stimulatingly um, dense addresses filled with ideas and uh, filled with important and uh, disturbing ideas in some respects, but certainly food for much thought. And this morning our goal is to do a little thinking and certainly to try to uh, identify some of the issues that were presented last night and, and question them, uh, flush them out, see where we might go with them from here. To do that, uh, we have assembled a distinguished panel and I will introduce them briefly, and then we will proceed. Um, to your left is David King. David is on the faculty of the Kennedy School, and more important for our purposes, and most interestingly, actually, uh, one of the things he does is run the sort of venerable Kennedy School Introduction for New Members of Congress program. I really wonder how many new members of Congress are going to come this time, David. I, I, I mean, it's, I mean, quite seriously. This has been a long-standing tradition that people who were elected to Congress of both parties came to the Kennedy School to essentially get a briefing in how uh, Washington worked, how Congress worked. This this group of congressmen and women is apt to uh, be, if, you, if Dick Army is telling them not to join committees, which is one of the things that was revealed last night, to me anyway, um, then I really wonder whether we're going to have uh, any interest in coming to Harvard to find out about how Congress works. We shall see. Uh, next to him, Charlie Gibson, uh, the distinguished journalist who was the anchor of ABC World News with, Gibson, with Charles Gibson and also longtime host uh, of Good Morning America at ABC News, and before that, someone who has covered Congress uh, in great depth and has seen an awful lot of both television news and politics over his career. He also, as a uh, Shorenstein Fellow this semester, uh, has had the distinction of moderating the absolutely most effective and impactful debate for the governor's race here in, uh, in Massachusetts, in which he began his uh, moderating by asking each of the candidates to, to explain the poetry of their campaigns. Uh, the response was utter blank looks <laughs> by all of them. <laughs> what a great question. Uh, next to him is uh, Mindy Finn. Mindy is uh, a Republican, uh, someone who has been very involved with political campaigns, new technology, uh, finding ways to harness new technology and social media and other mechanisms for the purposes of campaigning. Uh, she is uh, from Texas. Uh, she is a uh, loyal Texan, but uh, she is also someone who is a graduate of BU and knows this, uh, this region well. We're very glad to have you with us, Mindy. Um, Bill Greider, as you know, is uh, the winner of the Nyan Prize last night and a distinguished journalist who wears a red clown's nose on his, on his nose upon occasion. Um, made an impression on you. <laughs> it did. I was deeply I impressed. My grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Uh, but also, he is also clearly a very thoughtful and very uh, and concerned, optimistic but concerned. And last night, his remarks were, were very uh, provocative. They, I found them so, certainly. And finally, Susan Milligan. Susan is a veteran political journalist and writer at the Boston Globe. Uh, she's covered, you know, New York City Hall. She's covered all kinds of, of political stories for State's News Service, for the New York Daily News. Uh, the Boston Globe, and so forth. She is the co-author of Last Lion, the Fall and Rise of Ted Kennedy, and uh, winner of a number of journalism awards. I have, I have asked each of the panelists to very briefly speak about some aspect of what they heard last night that they found arresting, either something that they did not think of before but found they agreed with, something that they thought was wrong, something that they heard that um, that made an that made an impression. I mean, I think there was so much going around last night. I had, I had several people this morning say to me what I feel, which was that it was very hard, especially to keep up with Rachel Maddow. Uh, we're we're going to be publishing, of course, her her lecture, so we'll be able to read it. But she clearly had done a lot of work and had done a lot of thinking, and she had a lot of ideas. Uh, we are going to. Have, we're going to hear from each of the panelists in turn, then we will have um, a, a general discussion, and then we will invite you to join it, and I hope that you will. Um, let's start with you, David King. Is, uh, what did you hear last night? Well, first of all, are any of the new congressmen signing up? Yes, we have. We have, <laughs> we have new congressmen showing up, new members of Congress, and um, we're trying to boost the numbers at all, uh, all moments, and, and if you know any of the new members, I'd like to talk to you afterwards so we can... Uh, <laughs> put in some direct calls, but we have... Uh, You're worried about ratings? <laughs> we're worried about ratings, absolutely. We've had the program since 1972. Uh, we lost it for, for one year in the 104th Congress uh, when we were boycotted, not just by the Republicans, but also by the Democrats. Um, and we've had it ever since. And uh, we always run the program uh, after that first year with at least 50% of the members, of the new members. We anticipate uh, getting that again this year, although we have a hard slog to get there. So, last night. Well, there's so much to cover from last night. I want to uh, touch on one thing that I uh, it was an interesting, interesting resonance between uh, our two award winners last night about the Tea Party. Um, of course, both mentioned that the Tea Party is real and tapping into uh, this difference between elites in Washington and political elites generally and the great uh, disaffected. And uh, I know many of the political scientists, uh, sort of armchair political scientists, have been looking at groups like the Tea Party and saying, well, you know, it's all ginned up on uh, new media. They're all reading the same websites, and, and that's where they're getting excited. But uh, I want to underscore that um, new media alone doesn't really do anything. It can get people excited, but it doesn't make activists. And what the Tea Party has done very effectively is actually get people to house meetings. Uh, to go door to door, to talk to friends. Uh, you can use high tech, but ultimately it comes down to that personal touch, looking somebody in the eye and saying, it's crazy what's going on in Washington today. It's not enough to read. It's not enough to see a video clip on YouTube and become angry. Mobilization still takes place person to person. And I believe this is something that the parties have really missed out on. Uh, the parties have fallen down. The parties are now sort of just conglomerations of uh, the moneyed interests who support specific candidates. 
And those candidates are, are doing very poorly in terms of reaching out door to door, person to person, and building a grassroots movement. I think we have a lot to learn from groups like the Tea Party movement, and that is get in somebody's head, but then reach out and touch them uh, and ask them to become part of something bigger. That's the first thing that resonated. Thanks. Charlie? Well, I look forward to hearing what resonated with Bill Greider in, from Bill Greider's remarks. Uh, uh, actually, I, 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 wouldn't, I would take a pass on Bill's remarks. We, I don't know that you ever remember this, but you and I used to ride the M4 well, bus I together. Well, Charlie, I, <laughs> I would run out the front door with my shirt tail out, racing for the bus and pleading for them to stop, and you would look out the window of the bus and sort of smile. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and occasionally say to the driver, stop for that man. <laughs> but it, for me, it was a, uh, it was a, a great uh, a seminar, two-person seminar on journalism on that bus, uh, riding from uh, uh, Utah Avenue down to Connecticut Avenue, where we would transfer to the buses. And, um, so I, I, I would pick a pass on Bill's remarks. But I... Needless to say, uh, was interested in what Rachel had to say, and there were two things that struck me most about what she had to say. Um, number one was her question, which I really hadn't thought of in the context that she posed it. But do you feel comfortable, will you feel comfortable, getting news from people uh, who have a point of view, a decided point of view? Are you comfortable in accepting that because that is the future? And that worries me. I'm not comfortable with it. I thought about it during the night, and I finally decided, no, I'm not comfortable with it. And the second thing, simply because it comes through a, a prism, and what you know, David Brinkley used to say, uh, there is no such thing as objectivity. There's just lesser degrees of subjectivity. And that's what you need, we need to strive for um, in the roles that we were in. Um, and, her con and, and there's perfectly uh, acceptable... Uh, niches in, in broadcasting and in journalism for points of view, etc. But but where you get the news, quote unquote, on which you may base opinions, I still don't want it from someone with a a point of view. And so I, having thought about it, she posed the question in a different way. But I, I come out to, uh, with a negative answer in my own mind. And the second thing she said, which I thought was interesting, she made an admission that I was surprised to hear her make. At least, what I'm, I may be misquoting her, but I made a living out of misquoting people. Um, <laughs> but she, she said that, that her kind of, of broadcasting and the kinds of programs that she's involved in uh, may be good for politics, but they're not good for governance. And, and I agree with her on that. Uh, I thought it was a startling admission for her to make, and I think it's, uh, it's very true. Mindy? Sure. <clears throat> Well, there were actually several aspects of what Rachel said that I agree with. Um, as both Phil and Rachel talked about the Tea Party and the, the types of frustration that has given rise to the Tea Party, they discussed that it's, it's similar to the rise of the, the movement that, that pushed Barack Obama to the nomination of the Democratic Party from the extent that it is a populist movement. And that is something that I, I absolutely agree with, and it's something that um, activists, people that are part of the grassroots on both the right and the left can find common ground on. Um, <clears throat> there was something that, that really, um, it was one of the last things she said that gave me pause, which is someone asked her if she felt any responsibility for contributing to the, the, just the 
24-7 coverage of the political battles. And as Charlie says, that not being very good for, for governance. And what I understood her to say, um, again, I'm probably misquoting her, uh, it's just a paraphrase. What I understood her to say is that her, by covering the political battles, she has to engage in coverage of the political battles to be able to draw viewers. Mm -hmm. And by drawing viewers, it gives her the platform then to be able to insert coverage of important topics like policy and governance. And I thought that was brutally honest, and it's, it's a reality. But to me, that isn't any different than any politician, particularly a lot of the ones on the right that she decries, who engage in hyperbole and shouting and then can say, well, this gives me uh, credibility. This is what drives my influence. So then I am able to engage on policy issues and my positions on policy issues that I think are important. And, and later in, in talking with her as well, I mean, she is very clear to draw a distinction between herself and figures like Glenn Beck or Sean Hannity on the right. And I, I don't think that's fair. I, I actually, um, I enjoy watching Rachel. I, and as someone who is a political and junkie, I enjoy MSNBC because it really does, it's the only network that it gets into the inside baseball. I also like, like watching broadcasts. I also like listening to NPR. Um, so I think there's room for both. But um, I, I don't think it's fair to draw that distinction. You know, obviously she disagrees, but I think on both sides it's entertaining, and that's why they draw viewers. Entertainment draws viewers. And I think both figures, both the Glenn Becks and the Rachel Maddows, would say that we are contributing to the discussion, and sometimes you have to raise it to the level of hyperbole and shouting and snarkiness um, to get people to listen. I think they're right, but they're both doing the same thing. Bill? I thought it was all brilliant, and I, uh, really <laughs> <laughs> I, I let me just change the frame a little bit from what I said and, and also what Rachel said last night, and I've written this more than once in the nation. We are at, at I think, the, the apex or maybe the, the, the beginning of the down curve of an of a industrial revolution, technological revolution. And those of us who've been across the last 50 years in the media know again and again and again. I worked, one of my first jobs when I was still in college was an afternoon newspaper in Cincinnati, uh, the labor working class newspaper. It was educational for me. And what destroyed the afternoon newspapers? Television. Because people came home from the plant at 4.30 or even earlier in the afternoon maybe had a beer at the neighborhood bar, and then went home and read the newspaper, had an early dinner, etc. When TV came on, the contest was over. So it took 30 years to wipe them out, but that's what happened. Then you get lots of other inventions. What excites me now is that I think the, the digital mechanics, many of which I reject, I leave for the next generation tweeting and all that stuff. But it empowers individuals across distance and time and wealth. Uh, the Tea Party discovered some of that. I know other groups that have that are using it. And we I think we have to be a little patient with folks, but I think we are literally in a time where Americans are reinventing how they communicate with each other. And there are lots of reasons they want to communicate. Politics is only one of them. 
an important one. But I can see further development arising, which kind of diffuses the argument I make about the elite press or Rachel makes about the different kinds of TV shows. There'll always be those different kinds of TV shows. But given that we've got, what do we have, 800 channels, 1,000 channels? I mean, I can see programming arising, low cost, that does not require a business plan and a profit motive. And when people figure out how to make that balance pay, you can imagine a proliferation of political communication that isn't based on a, on a profit incentive at all. Um, so I, it would be nice if we had a political party that actually uh, encouraged this in a, in a broader, more positive way. The reason we don't is because it's quite threatening to concentrated power. And that's corporate, cor political, and so forth and so on. So I'm, I'm with the folks in the street, and I hope they, uh, I hope they move quickly. Susan? Um, well, Alex, <clears throat> I want to say, first of all, that literally two minutes before you introduced us, the three of us were talking about how, how the, that moment, well, the first moment is when you get mammed or served, but the second moment was when someone refers to you as a veteran anything, because and you know you've reached middle age, and then you, that's the first thing you said. And I live in fear of someday being given some sort of lifetime achievement award, then you know you've got a year to live. So um, anyway. Sorry. No, it was just really, literally about, what, 30 seconds before you um, I, I was fascinated, actually, with, with both with both addresses last night. And um, although I would have wanted to see more of an exploration of the implications of some of it, I think that Rachel was right in saying that, um, you know, obviously the media world has changed, and people people hate the media, and they have they don't care that journalism is in decline. I would have liked to see more of a discussion of how dangerous that is for democracy. Um, and when she talked about uh, Dick Army and talk, you know saying people shouldn't go on committees, I did not know that, and that was just stunning to me. I mean, well, actually, it wasn't stunning to me, but the detail was stunning to me. And what I've seen, I mean, you know, people have talked about whether things are things really worse than they've ever been. Oh, they say that all the time, and it is. I've been in and out of there for thirty years, and it's never been this bad. And there's uh, such an utter state of dysfunction in Washington right now, where. I mean, aside from, I mean, to, to literally say we're not going to participate in the political process by doing the work on the committees is startling to me. But it, it even gets as petty as, uh, you know, when the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup, Dick Durbin introduced your usual resolution honoring the, uh, the Chicago Blackhawks. And um, one of the, you know, that's something they just do in five seconds on the floor, and, and it's, it's, they have a little thing to put up on the wall. And uh, Republican senator, I was told it was Jim DeMitt, put a hold on it. So they have to like go through the judiciary committee if they want to get this through, and it's just it's 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 gotten to that level of pettiness now in Washington. They're, nobody talks to each other. They're in a constant campaign. They don't get anything done. This is very very dangerous for democracy. But what's happening that's just as bad is that the media is now enabling that by sort of focusing constantly on conflict and constantly on the battle and constantly on the campaign. So if you look at some of the stories that were written the Sunday after the elections last week, so many of them were about, well, what does this mean for 2012? It's just constantly about the campaign. So you're not really even putting any pressure at all on, on people in public office to actually legislate and actually govern. And the nexus of these two trends is so terrifying to me in terms of what it means for democracy. 
Um, and I don't think that we just have to accept it. I mean, that was the one thing that did bother me a little bit last night, that, that when she was saying, you know, well, this is just the way the media is now, and, you know, will, you know, will people just get their, their news and their information from watching these shows? I don't think we have to just, you know, say, oh, those nostalgic days when we actually wrote news stories and, you know, tried to write some balanced and fully reported story on something. And a lot of people wrote the same story, so you could get different perspectives on it. I don't think we have to say, well, those days are gone. I think the delivery system might be different. I think um, some newspapers maybe become a little bit more niche, at least a printed edition. But um, I, I, I just, that I don't accept. I don't accept that that's just a trend that, that we just have to. Well, let me, let me push back a little bit on the idea that what is happening uh, on shows like uh, Rachel Maddow made the point, I think, very powerfully that the one successful area of news right now is the cable news shows. Glenn Beck, Bill O'Reilly, uh, you know, Rachel Maddow. And she is very, she told me last night as we were walking over to for, for dinner that MSNBC is essentially the only uh, profitable enterprise at NBC News and it basically supports the NBC news operation that feeds her the, uh, the news that you're talking about, Charlie. Alex, let, me, let me interrupt you for a sec. There's in, you know, there was a bit of crowing on her part that the day of cable has come. And she talked about it almost as a three-part universe of Fox, MSNBC, and CNN. There are those things called over-the-air networks that still exist. And, but she is right about the business model. The business model at the moment for ABC News and CBS News is unsustainable. And it is sustainable at NBC only because of MSNBC. But that is not because the audiences are so disproportionate for cable. People are not rushing to cable. The audience that she has, she may have fans in a crowd at Harvard, but the, the audience that she has is minuscule. It is also extraordinarily small compared to the over-the-air networks. And I admit that the over-the-air networks do not have the kind of impact that they had uh, in, the, in the Cronkite and Huntley Brinkley days. Frank Reynolds days, but but they are still they still way way overwhelm the audiences that are going to her show or the other. The okay. difference is the difference is that that the over the air networks have only on air advertising to support them, whereas the cable networks have subscription fees. So every time you send your thirty five dollars or whatever it is to Comcast or to uh, to your cable network, twelve cents of that is going to MSNBC or fifteen cents or eighteen cents is going to ESPN. Some money is going to CNN and to Fox. That is the way those operations are very profitable. It is simply the fact that those subscription revenues are denied the over-the-air networks. Okay, I, I take your point. But the, the thing that she was saying that I think that was what she was trying to get at was how important what NBC News does to what MSNBC News does, what she does. Yep. The information that she uses to sort of you know, riff on and, and, and analyze and talk about uh, is coming from a model that she was saying last night, and I think with some justification, is in real jeopardy. Uh, and, and she was also, of course, making the point that what she does is what she does, what they all do on the cable news style format. Um, undermines governance. Now, David, I want to ask you, is that really true? Is that really true? Or is this just the way governance is working now and probably has worked at some time in the past in that, in that you know, there, the idea that, that there's a you know, perpetual campaign, that there's a lot of emotion and partisanship, is that simply 
a different form of governance, or is that non-governance? Well, it's a different form of governance, and it's not new. Um, these are, uh, this is the kind of cycle that we've seen several times in the past, certainly on the run-up to the Civil War during the 1920s, uh, the, uh, times when the country was uh, really unclear. The parties were also uncertain about the direction of the country. And right now there is not a lot of clarity from the parties about uh, what the direction of the country will be. More importantly, there's not a lot of clarity uh, among the American people. So this kind of polarization is not new. Uh, this kind of to toxicity is not particularly new. It's all new in our lifetime. Um, and there's been, for most of our lives, a terribly misplaced faith in the two-party system, in parties in general, believing that parties are what supports democracy, when that's simply not the case. Um, uh, political parties and candidates, it's not in their business model, actually, to support democracy per se, their business model is to get as many votes as they need, not as many votes as they can possibly get, but as many votes as they need, subject to a budget constraint. So they go after uh, potential voters who, who have a history of having voted, of not being particularly a uh, pain in the butt about trying to get out, uh, get out to vote, uh, and to the extent possible, suppressing uh, the votes of folks who haven't voted in the past. And uh, if it's not necessarily in the interests of the parties or of candidates to vigorously support democracy, whose job is it? Well, it's, it's my job as a parent. Uh, it's my job as a teacher. It's everyone in this room's job as somebody's friend. It's our church's jobs. And it has been, I believe, the job of uh, responsible journalism for a very long time. Um, and that's really missing right now, uh, holding uh, democracy writ large accountable. Um, I'd love to be able to watch an, an evening news show without seeing, you know, uh, yet another um, advertisement for yet another uh, disease that I never heard of. Um, and then the reporting follows, uh, not focusing necessarily on the broad problems of public health. And you multiply that over and over and over again. Um, part of the support of democracy that we cannot and should never expect from our political parties and from our candidates, uh, we're losing. And that is a vigorous, um, a, a vigorous uh, reporting. Vigorous Mindy, do you, do you, would you, how do you react to what David has just said? <clears throat> well, I don't think that it's Rachel Maddow or... Glenn Beck's responsibility, for that matter, for the gridlock, um, for the lack of solving problems in governance, for the partisanship. Um, it, it is a reality, though, of the era in which we live that the, the politicians are more exposed than they ever were. And I think coming into the Internet era, you know, initially that was seen as, as a positive. If the American people have more access to their politicians, the politicians are more transparent. They see the, the politicians, the elected officials, as, um, you know, as humans, and they know more what's going on, that's a positive. If they have things like cable news, if they have blogs, if they have even you know, journalists who are writing more stories per day, that's a positive. But I think one of the dangers, and, and this was discussed last night too, is that the focus, the, the job of, say, a senator or a congressman has changed and taken them out of the actual day-to-day -day governing and solving problems that they're, uh, they're the job of a legislator and is more of a, a spokesperson. 
and it's more of a soapbox. And it's even resulted in, and I know that Susan was talking about this last night, that the you know, senators particularly have stopped doing local media, or senator, senatorial candidates have stopped doing local media, because part of what they think a senator needs to do is to become more of a national figure, and they're all vying for that. And they have an outlet to do it in a way that they couldn't before. So, um, and not only is it, does it make them um, you know, be more influential, they, they see, but they raise money off of it. They rally grassroots. Uh, they build a following outside their, their state and their domain. So it, it is a reality in which we live. But one thing I would, I would point out to what Rachel said that I, that I did agree with, which is I accept what, what Charlie and, and Susan are saying and that we don't just have to accept that everything is moving to the, the um, you know, fractured media and that we do, it is important to have hard news and, and straight reporting. But, but, but I, she, she said something very interesting, which is she said, paraphrasing again, rather than just saying stop and trying to push it back, which is what she sees a lot of people doing. And it's something, in fact, politicians, being someone who works with candidates, they try to do with the internet for a long time. You know, they took a cower and fear approach. You know, if we just ignore it, it's going to go away. And then you had things like the Makaka moment with George Allen, and they saw that that, that couldn't be the case. What, what Rachel said is um, start thinking about how to operate within this new paradigm and accomplish what you think needs to be accomplished. So how do you, uh, how do you create a business model, Charlie said, that works where you're still producing hard news? How do you draw viewers um, in the way, maybe not um, you know, people who are such loyal fans the way they are with Rachel Maddow and the Glenn Becks, but maybe that's not what you want anyway. You know, how do you operate within this new paradigm and accomplish what you think needs to be accomplished, which is hard news, better governance? And I, I'm an optimist, and I think we will get there. It is a tumultuous time because we're, this is, it's a new, the, as um, Bill said, we're moving very quickly into the information age, and people that came out of the, industri came out of the industrial age don't know how to operate within it. Bill, how would this, this thing that you say you can see on the horizon, because there are multiple cable channels, and of course the web is, is infinite, this non-profit, non-commercial information vehicle that everyone can be I assume, I, I assume you mean would be fed by individuals and citizens rather than journalists, or are these flesh that out a little bit well, as, your, as part of your vision. I, my, the big cloud that is over all of our heads, and uh, David King's remarks I thought really went to the core, is that we have been taught by two generations of professors and propaganda to see everything as a business model. That isn't why we exist, not why I exist, uh, uh, to, to make a profit and to have a balance sheet at the end where you can say we won the competition. We have a society here composed of people of great diversity and talent, etc. And democracy was supposed to serve that society. You can take different sectors of the media, newspapers are the ones we know most familiarly, and I, it happened in my lifetime, or Marty's, where the, the competition that used to exist, which had diversity, you knew which newspaper you were reading and whether it was the newspaper you could trust or the folks across town could trust, but there was a multiplicity. That gets wiped out, that, and we, we then enter a long, very, very profitable era of what I call monopoly capitalism. That's what it was. And, and uh, that was first in each town. You made sure that the other guy was out of business 
and you've got the whole pie yourself. You can tell that story again and again across America. And then, as Marty points out, along comes Gannett and says, well, we can make a chain of monopoly capitalism, and that'll be even more profitable. And indeed it was. And that allows you to forget some of the stuff David King was talking about, your obligations to democracy, et cetera, because that's just overhead you don't need anymore. And then comes technology along to destroy those monopolies. <gasps> that's what's happening now. And I say hooray. And I don't know what replaces them. But I, I resist the idea of having to come up with a business plan that shows you can make a profit doing this. What I read it, when, when we talk that way, what we're doing is, is wiping out the tradition of public interest and the commonality of what people need. And, and if we, if we, I want to see a really ferocious fight. I think there doesn't feel like it yet, but I think we're on the brink of that. We're, and we could all talk about the, the icons of, of, of fierce individualistic competition. I would like to get Milton Friedman back for a few days to talk to him about what he taught Americans to believe was in their interest and where we are now. My point is, if we get a restoration of that, that democratic interest in enough people, and I hear some, some sounds of it coming from the Tea Party, and I ask myself, why isn't there a left version of that? Or, or at least a labor version, or I, I would like to see 12 tea parties <coughs> building around elections, and they will have a kind of fierceness and, and uh, uncompromising uh, sense of what they want from politics. That's self-interest. Nobody has to have an accounting of what's profit and what's loss. People will do it when they see their self And can you point to any either place in American history or other place where this has happened? Absolutely. I can go through this from the beginning. Uh, my favorite period is the populist uh, era. I, there's one book people ought to read to understand what democracy is potentially about. It's Larry Goodwin's uh, The Populist Moment. Uh, and and w which was? When, in the turn of the century? Or, or? It was the 1880s. Uh, it started right after the Civil War with the great deflation, the money power crushing farmers all across the South and Midwest. And then it, it, it flowered in, the, in a political party. It was defeated really in 1896 when Brian, the Democrat, co-opted it with the nomination. It's a long story. What you, what you will get out of this book, and I've echoed it in some of my books, these were people who were desperately uh, defeated by history who knew they had not just the government against them, but Wall Street and the bankers and so forth and so on. Most of them were ill-educated, uh, you know, barefoot farmers. And they organized their own politics because they knew neither political party uh, would speak to their needs. I think I'm hearing that in what David King is saying. When people get to the stage of need and, and anger and all the rest to do that for themselves, we now have marvelous capabilities that, that, that the populace didn't mm -hmm. have. Because of the web. It would... Well, because of all the technologies and because knowledge, I mean, it, it, we can't compare with the past because we don't 
have we have only not a glimmer of how desperate people were in those days, and we're not desperate, even the poorest among us, and, and not in those terms. But what I'm saying is that it's within Americans, enough of them, to generate that kind of politics. And yes, the technologies uh, reduce, literally reduce the cost of organizing for people without wealth. That's a great possibility. Let, let me get back to, um, to the Rachel Maddow show for a moment, if we can. Um, one of the, the last question that was asked last night was by Dick Toffel, and he, he, he repeated something that has been said here already this morning, which is what is, given the moment, given an election in 2012, and given someone like Rachel Maddow, who does seem genuinely, in my opinion, to be trying to figure out what her role should be in a commercial environment, and one that her you know, ratings spike when she trashes uh, conservative journalists uh, and is very mindful of that and is very mindful that she is a commercial success at MSNBC and that that's why she is on the air and someone else is not. Uh, Susan and Charlie, how, would, how do you think Rachel Maddow should draw whatever line there might be in her presence and using her influence uh, to be helpful in the next two years as we run up to this uh, presidential election? Well, I, I don't think that necessarily, um, you know, the idea like, well, okay, I'll, we'll pay the bills by my, you know, going after the conservative media so then I can then use it as a platform for something more substantive. I don't think that's necessarily going to work. I agree with Bill. The whole idea that we even think of the success of something as financial, I mean, when we talk about MSNBC being the most successful, it wasn't because they'd won... Peabody Awards or, or had done some great, we weren't talking about the journalism they'd done, but just how much money they were making. I mean, but we see, of course, we see this all over the place. My father's fond of telling me that when he was a kid, he didn't know how much money Joe DiMaggio made. And now the sports pages, you know, we define a successful athlete as somebody who gets some, uh, some huge salary. So I, I don't, I, I'm not naive enough to think that, that, you know, her ability to stay on the air, the Globe's ability to keep publishing has nothing to do with finances. Of course it does, but I don't like the idea that, you know, we just have to accept that you pander to this, you know, hyper-political element of the country. And I don't actually think that the whole country is as partisan as, as we pretend that it is. I actually think it's, it's, you know, some very angry people out there, and they, they seem more numerous because of the Internet. You know, it gives a, an opportunity for everyone to have a voice. Unfortunately, because everyone can have a voice, people think they need to shout more loudly to be heard. And on the Internet, shouting more loudly means being more abusive or abrasive or whatever, and the same thing is true on cable TV. So I don't think she should use her role to sort of, you know, kind of, okay, I'll just appease this, you know, conflict-obsessed part of the media or the public so we can then talk about something substantive because I think one poisons the other. Charlie, what's your reaction to that dilemma? I, I don't, I, I was not uh, persuaded by her defense that, uh, that you have to get an audience and then educate them because I think basically that program is about ratings. And, and that's why she has uh, survived. Her ratings are good um, uh, in, the, in the MSNBC universe. Um, I, I wish I could agree with Bill that we were in a, in a position where profits didn't matter. I think we are in a situation where we really are in a transitional stage in terms of the media. First of all, I disagree with Rachel Maddow when she says people hate the press. I don't think that's true. Um, and I certainly don't find it in relations that, that I see um, uh, people are, are hungry for information. And I think the, the, 
vast majority of people are, are uh, hungry for, for information that they can trust. But we, we, from <laughs> when we sat down, David said to me, please understand that you are the defender of the out-of-date, uh, what did you, how did you word it? Uh, the out-of-date, over-the-air media, et cetera, um, and, and you're the old fart. Um, uh, and I feel that way to some extent. But, but we, are, we are, when I grew up, we had three voices in television. Uh, we now have, as Bill points out, uh, six to 700 cable channels. And soon, I think we're going to be at the position, I think the cable, the life of cable television is, the half-life of cable television is very short. Really? Um, yes. And we're going to be in a situation where the main thing that you see on your television screen will come through your computer. We will link those inexorably, and then the number of voices becomes not 600, but essentially infinite. And how that is going to play out, I think, Bill, is the, is the critical question of the age whether we're going to have responsible voices in that or whether you get into a greater um, degree, even than we are now, of narrow casting, where you are looking for just you know, very small subsets of the population. And then in order to be heard, you have to yell the loudest, as Susan points out. You, um, that's the, that, that, or it could become a force for good, and we could have uh, many, many responsible voices in that universe that really are... Uh, dispensing information that you can trust. Let me give an example. Sure. Of, uh, and this is not original with me. Others have written about it uh, with real better knowledge. But you have in the Boston area an example of what I am trying to envision called, tell me if I get the name wrong, Voice of the Faithful. What is that? I'm not familiar with it. Well, it, it grew up here. It grew up in this area. When the Boston Globe, to its great credit and courage, wrote a very tough, revealing series of paper on the abuses within the Catholic Church. That, armed with that information, and here's where newspapers really, really matter, people around the area first started talking to one another. Catholics who knew, or were just outraged, or they had personal experiences and so forth. That became an organization that built up here and then started reaching all across the country. Am I right? And, and that, uh, I wasn't here, so I don't want to mangle the facts, but I think that changed the politics big time for the Catholic Church. For the first time, the laity, not uh, sinners, not <laughs> againers or, or heretics, but the, the faithful were armed to speak to the hierarchy in a way they could never have mm -hmm. before. That's, poli that's political change. It's really meaningful. I've spent, some of you all know this, probably most of you don't, but Boston, again, has a very strong organization affiliated with the Industrial Areas Foundation. And I've, I mentioned Saul Alinsky's name. That gives you a wrong understanding of what this is. This is a it's the closest thing I've seen in person, and not here in Boston, but across the country. These IF organizations bring together people across class, across race, across religions, and they work on their, what they care about in their communities. And they're usually very, very effective because they put the faith in the people and the people do it. I've been hung around with them for 25, years or more just because it is this wonderful experience for me to see this actually happening in America 
all of the divisions that we supposedly are split up by, suddenly they're in the same room and they're not yelling at each other, they're actually doing politics. The technologies, they were late to the technologies because, you know, they're sort of old-fashioned, small <coughs> Democrats. And now they're beginning to, to realize that these technologies are perfect for their politics because they can now link up groups across the country. They have a, a group, the Boston area has been very strong on this. Um, and I, I was agitating on the same uh, usury. That's a religious value, right? It's also a legal value. Why are there no ceilings on interest rates? Um, uh, because they were repealed by the Democrats in 1980, that's why. <coughs> and that was part of the deregulation that led to our present uh, scandals. So they're campaigning for, they have a, they have a uh, their slogan is 10% is enough. You know, instead of 30%, 40%, Payday lending is at 500% interest rates. 10% is enough. And, there, and, and a minister from, from the Boston area, I forget his name, Presbyterian, I think, came up with the slogan, if 10% is enough for God, it ought to be enough for the bankers. I think and that's spreading mm -hmm. around the world now. They've got groups in Europe and elsewhere saying, yeah, that's right. So I, that's why I'm, I'm optimistic, but, and I, I repeat, we're only at the earliest stages of people figuring out how to use these things themselves. Never mind what the parties say, never mind what the church says, never mind what the government says. One of the things that uh, is wonderful about being at the Kennedy School is that that is, um, and I mentioned last night, that, that everybody who comes here comes here because they believe they have some role in changing the world for the better. And one of the things that we are teaching them at the Shorenstein Center, one of the things that we've taken on as our part of our mission is teaching them how to do these very things you're talking about, using technology to create organizations to then use the technology that's available now to make them uh, viable, make them uh, grow, make them become effective. It's really quite fascinating to to see people, the Kennedy School is the most international school at, at Harvard. Half the student body here is from other countries. Um, and some of them have a lot of understanding and expertise of new media. Some of them have almost none. But, but they come here because of what they want to do. And virtually all of them recognize the power of new media in, uh, in, object in, in, in achieving that objective. Uh, I want to open this uh, conversation to to you now. Uh, we have a microphone back here. Uh, I would ask that if you, uh, if you have a question that you speak loudly. We're mic'd and, uh, and you are not and uh, if you would use the, the microphone there uh, if possible. Uh, but we would like to hear what you have to say. Yes. Uh, I'd just like to make one correction on interest rates. It was not Congress. It was the Marquette decision years ago that effectively repealed uh, interest rates for banks, and it was the Green New Trust case, and then subsequently the Treasury, uh, uh, the control of the currency, uh, uh, decided that it could overrun all state laws regarding interest rates with regard to banks, where they could all kinds of fees and charges that banks could charge without limit. That ruling started by totally undercutting all state regulation of interest rates. 
that, that's true. It, it, the history is in the late 70s, but in 1980, the U.S. Congress, Jimmy Carter was president, yes. enacted the, 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 the repeal of all of the federal usury statutes. And so, along with, a, with other uh, disasters like uh, deregulating the savings and loan industry, which led to their bloody collapse. I mean, I'm, I don't want to re-argue the history. Yes, go ahead. Yes, uh, how are you? Uh, I, I share uh, David's pessimism over the uh, enthusiasm over the populist aspect of the uh, tea bag or tea party movement or whatever. Uh, uh, because as a student and a, uh, a teacher of history, it's generally turned out to be rather disastrous for African Americans. And uh, one of the things that one of the questions I wanted to raise last night, and I'll, I'll raise it here, is what uh, do you think, those of you in the panel, that the question of race in general and the race of the president in particular is a initiator, motivator, and sustainer of the uh, Tea Party movement? Um, I actually wrote a piece last week called Obama Without Tears. You can find it on the Nation website, thenation.com. And I, and I was, a, I hope, a fair and basically sympathetic discussion of why I think he has so far had a disastrous presidency despite his accomplishments. Um, but I, in that piece, I said, by, by being generous, open, modest in his claims on the governing system, unlike other presidents we have known, he left a vacuum. And, and his, his opponents filled that vacuum in different ways, not just Republicans, but Democrats as well. And one of the things they did, the Republicans pursued, they turned all of his best qualities upside down and demonized him as a power-mad socialist, and on and on and on. And I compared it, I called it racial McCarthyism, because that's what it is. And, I, and they should have been called out on it right from the start by the Democratic Party, if not the president. I, it would be out of character for the, this president to be that kind of combative person. That's not who he is. But, but they, if you, if, you, if you were alive in the 1950s and 1960s, it is very similar to what Republicans did to liberals and labor lefties in the 1950s. Why, why racial, though? Because he's a black man. <laughs> I mean, what I mean is, is that, is, is that why or how they did it, or is that? It's the context. You don't have to mention that he's a black man. Everybody can see that for themselves. But it is, I'm, I'm essentially saying, yes, race is damn right it's present. It's the, it's the context beneath the rhetoric. And it wouldn't, you wouldn't make these kinds of accusations against this man, knowing who he is. He's been very self-revealing if he weren't black, and get away with it. I, I think there's something else at play here, too. And, um, you know, when, I go, when I've gone to some of these Tea Party rallies and so forth, let's all remember, by the way, this isn't a political party, and this isn't a singular movement. It's a sort of a, I mean, it's not a single-minded movement. It's a lot of different groups of people, and, and uh, they're not all racist or whatever, although, although some of them certainly are. But I do think there's, I see a lot of sort of middle-aged white men at some of these rallies, and I'm going to try to 
put this in a way that's actually meant to be somewhat compassionate and not just accusatory, but if you're a white man and you're 55 years old and you, you grew up in this country and with a certain set of expectations, whereas that your gender and your race pretty much ran the country and your country ran the world, and that's not true anymore. And, you know, uh, you, we can have a great military and people can fly planes into buildings, or we used to have this, we have this great economy, or we did, but, you know, China, like, owns us basically at this point because they own so much of our debt and it's very unsettling and I think there's a reason that so many of the ads uh, in the campaigns this fall for that were against other members of Congress pictured you know the black president the female speaker and the gay committee chairman and it's not that everybody who was out there was is a racist or a sexist or a homophobe it's just it's got to be a little jarring you know I mean when you're so you're sitting there you're out of work you know the business that you were in maybe doesn't even really exist anymore if you were in heavy manufacturing and you just look around and see that the whole world that you grew up with is just so radically different I, I think that that's part of it too and it's so that it's not just like this pure racism I don't like the fact that we have a black president I just I just think there's it's, a lot of people's worlds have gotten shaken up in the past couple decades Tom did you ever just speak as loudly as you can. Yeah, I, I sort of wanted to ask about uh, some of the assumptions about differences between the old media and the new media. Penny um, White's last book, we talked last night about the making of the president. Uh, his, his last book was called, if I remember, America in Search of Itself. Uh, well, maybe turn this off. Yeah, here, right. Um, it was called, I think, America in Search of Itself. Uh, had a little bit of the 1980 election in it, but it was also kind of his looking back at uh, his period of, of covering politics. And, uh, and he talked a little bit about sort of the impact of his making uh, of the president books. Uh, and he said uh, something to the effect, I wish to hell I'd never put that model out there. Um, and what he was referring to was the fact that Reporting had increasingly tried to pry inside the campaigns. It was really had become inside baseball. And that separation that uh, Rachel Maddow was talking about last night between uh, campaigning and governing actually predates cable television, and it predates Fox News. Uh, that it began in the late 70s, the 80s, um, where, and there is a governing component to campaigning, but that almost fell off the table. Uh, and then it crept into coverage of Washington. Uh, there's a great study by uh, Kathleen Hall Jamison on the 1993-94 health care uh, bill. Uh, that was almost all kind of who's up, who's down. Very little about the substance of the legislation. Uh, the public became increasingly confused and aligned in kind of predictable ways because it was all kind of inside baseball. Uh, and then I think about the talk shows. Uh, there may, in fact, be more policy on the talk shows. We may not like the way that it's presented, uh, but there may be more meat as well as more red meat um, on, on the talk shows. Um, and so my question, I think it probably is for Charlie and uh, Bill and Susan, is, is, and the question is, is, is there a need for the traditional media to reinvent itself? Uh, can it? What would it look like? Charlie? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I worry about the same thing, Tom, and, and one of the reasons I got out was um, that I didn't think we were making it any better. Um, and that's a, an admission that I hate to make, but I didn't see within, and I come back to Bill's, within the business model that we were existing and the needs for profit that we had, 
and the pressures that were put on the, the, the news department as a whole. I didn't see that we were necessarily, even though we were the, you know, quote, old line and more traditional media, that we were um, an effective counterweight to, to the kinds of things that were growing up in, in other sectors. And I don't have an answer to your question. Um, I think there is a need to reinvent. There's a need for a different business model. And I don't see it in, in what is the, the media from whence I come. And so it was time for me to go. Um, and that really is the, is the basic reason. I don't know how to reinvent it, and I think it, it needs to be done. Mindy, would you comment about this from your perspective as, a, as a, someone who works in campaigns and who you know, uh, works that media source? Sure. Um, I I do think, I guess I'm of the belief that it's going to bounce back um, to some extent. And by that, I mean there's so much information out there. I mean, it is just, it's a constant stream. And if you're somebody who is an elected official or a candidate or even a member of the media who's trying to follow it, it is, it's virtually impossible. And it can, it can make you dizzy. Um, and it can wear you out really fast. And, and I think that the, the downside of that at this point, well, two, one thing. First of all, from an elected official standpoint, elected officials have been known for a long time to obsess about how their name appears in print, what is said about them, and in the age of television, how they're presented on TV. Now they have thousands of times that their names are mentioned in quote-unquote print um, or they're talked about, and it's very easy to obsessed and get wound up about that as opposed to thinking critically about weighing what's being said, what's important, what actually makes sense, and realizing that they're not going to please everybody. Um, and so I, I just think as, as individual, individuals, here's an example. Let's talk about you know, Rachel Maddow. Um, we've discussed whether you know, she has a responsibility to, um, she has a responsibility to not further along the, the noise machine and the shouting. And I think that at the moments like that, you have to ask yourself, as I'm sure some of the esteemed journalists on this panel have, you know, what is my responsibility to my job versus my responsibility as a citizen? And how do I balance those two? And the, the journalists of old time, at least as we, we perceive them, they were doing both at the same time. The responsibility to their job was also their responsibility as, as a citizen. And I, you know, if everything is about the business model and we're not going to have the, the loudest voices that are producing news that are living up to that responsibility, the responsibility comes back onto us as individuals. Um, and this goes to what, what Bill has been saying all along. And it sounds simplistic, and I, I don't, certainly don't have the, all the answers, but I do think that we're going to see a, a movement in whatever form it takes of individuals saying that... Um, we need to think more critically about the information that we consume, and we need to be more judicious about where we get our, where we get our sources of information. Um, there's an individual uh, named Clay Johnson, who is someone who also works kind of in online politics, but on the left, who has a blog that's called Info Vegan. And I think that is such a brilliant, <laughs> a brilliant term. And his point is, <laughs> the way that vegans would say that we consume food and we don't want to, you know, we want to leave out the additives and all the things that are bad for you. We need to do the same thing with the information. There's so much information out there, 
that we need to become info, info vegans. And I do think that there's going to be, you know, rather, than, it, it may be that in this world where each individual has an equal voice or an equal opportunity to decide the news for themselves or decide, you know, what they're going to do, what movements they're going to join and what causes, that we're going to have to rely less on the um, one source voice of God, as Rachel Maddow calls it, to decide for us what's important. The responsibility is going to become more on the individual. Um, and, but people are going to realize they're going to have to do that if they want to remain productive citizens in society and, and be doing, continue to do their patriotic duty. We had Bill Powers, uh, who was a former Shorenstein fellow, wrote a wonderful book uh, about, about consuming information. And he came up with an idea, or he, at least I'd never heard of it before, but he has adopted it with his family. And he calls it the Internet Sabbath that they observe from sundown on Friday until Monday morning. And he said it's transformed his, his family's life. Now, I don't, know that that's, that, I don't know that that's a solution to anything, but I think it does go to the concept that many of us feel of this overwhelming uh, um, dependence now, addiction, really. And it's, I tried to imagine going a weekend without turning a computer on. It was hard for me to you know, imagine such a thing. Yeah, George. There, um, when Rachel Maddow was talking with John Stewart last week, um, I thought of a book that they didn't mention, and I hear the same thing here, and that's uh, "Society of the Spectacle" by Guy Debord, the Situationist philosopher, written in the '60s, and some comments on the Society of the Spectacle because that's exactly what you guys are talking about: how the spectacular takes over everything. Another hole that I see, um, and I'm interested to know whether people are aware of these things. Some friends of mine went to uh, a meeting, the uh, U.S. Social Forum in Detroit this summer. There were 15 to 20,000 Democratic Socialists meeting in Detroit. And I'm wondering, did that get covered? On October 10th, um, Bill McKibben, 350.org, 7,000 work groups on climate change, people doing practical things about climate change all around the world, organized through the internet for zero money, basically. A couple of college students in Bill McKibben, every country except North Korea and Equatorial Guinea. Both of these, in my looking at the media, didn't get covered. It's not part of the media conversation that these things happened. And it's not the Tea Party, and it's not Daily Coast, and it's not Rachel Maddow, but it's not on a horizon, and I wonder why that is. Well, uh, Bill, why don't you respond? Are you familiar with the situation? Nation, uh, yeah. You read The Nation, you would know about these things. I'm serious. I'm serious. And I, I won't go into, a, a, into the nation, but I, Karen Rothmeyer, my distinguished former managing editor, and she, she and I, for 10 years, were, worked together and sometimes banged our heads over issues, but uh, she will test it, testify this better than I. I joined the nation a, a little more than a decade ago, and it's and I would say, I think, without any qualifying... It's the best place I've worked, and I've worked, as you know, 
long string of places. And it is not without um, conflict inside over ideas and over subject matter and all the things that any publication has. But the, but the, the editing is, first of all, superb, but also very serious to do the things we're talking about, which is to actually communicate real stuff. We don't have to be spectacular because we're the nation, and we have a commitment. I, I once described it in, in, in an acknowledgment in my last book. The nation, in summary, is a journal with human sympathy and tough-minded reporting, and I'm proud to be part of that. The Martin, point I make, what, what, well, what, I'm, I'm getting to my point. Here. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. The, the, uh, this is why talking about business models as the basis for communication drives me nuts. If that's the basis for communication, you can forget human sympathy and tough-minded reporting because they are circumscribed by the, by the need to serve your, your idea of the audience. Back to what Tom asked about. When I wrote Who Will Tell the People 20 years ago, basis of that book was the, the governing politics is what people care about, not the politics versus the government. And the idea that those two are separable, look on any newsroom, though, they are separated there. You have a political reporter, uh, excusing people like Marty from this crude generalization. Here's the truth. Most Washington political reporters do not know very much about government. And you can test that the next time you talk to one. They, I mean that literally. They don't really understand government very well. They're not very interested in it. They cover politics. And they campaigns and so forth and so on because they assume that's what really matters. And then you have economics reporters and financial reporters who are often very learned in their, in their specialty. But they regard politics as this messy intrusion on economics and financial. You see, you see what I mean? The, the, the structure of the media institutions more or less guarantees that you won't get coverage of governing realities because they don't see that as a subject that really interests their readers. I, I, I will quit, but you get a sense of my feelings. Um, hi, I'm Felicity Spectron. I work for Channel 4 News in Britain. And although when I'm in America, I enjoy watching the Rachel Maddow show. It's, part of me feels slightly uncomfortable because I enjoy it because I agree with it. And I think that the job of news isn't to reinforce everyone's opinions. And I'm worried that we, we're kidding ourselves that this multimedia world and the Internet and so on is going to empower people to find out information. I think that people with money who can invest in real journalism and spend the necessary dollars on finding out information out in the world are going to be the powerful ones. And if we have a media which is disseminating opinionated news, then the people who control what we know are the people with the money. It's the Rupert Murdochs and the Associated Newspapers and, and those kind of organizations. And I'm wondering what you, how you, whether you feel that I'm just being outdated and clinging to a system that I believe in where we're not allowed to be opinionated on the air in Britain. It's against the law. And I like that because it means that I have my opinions, but I keep them to myself, and I don't voice them on other people, and I don't only tell them the facts that I think they should know, but they're able to find out more than that and be challenged about the, what they think. David King, why don't you respond to that? 
Well, uh, thank you, Felicity. And I, um, you know, I, we've been obliquely talking about what's called confirmation bias. People consume information that tells them that they're pretty smart. Um, so, we, you know, people don't want to hear that they're kind of foolish, um, but most of us tend to be pretty foolish. So this is a problem with the multiplicity of, of news sources. Some of them are absolutely fabulous and help to build communities, such as the small one we have in my, my town of 24,000 people, which everyone now goes online and reads Belmont Patch, almost everyone. Um, and so that's very narrow uh, source of information. But then when my parents want to know about what's happening, they go to um, their particularly biased um, websites that tell them they, they weren't so foolish after all, all this time. Now, is that, is that, and my parents, by the way, yes, you understand through therapy, my parents were foolish all this time. <laughs> um, the, uh, but I'm wondering if that's necessarily a bad thing. I, my instinct is that it is. But uh, I also, uh, one of my favorite uh, books by Bill Greider is um, The Education of David Stockman. Fabulous piece of reporting. Got him, got David Stockman in quite a bit of trouble. Had to be taken to the woodshed, for example. Um, but then nothing really changed, right? The, the tax cuts went through. We ran up huge deficits uh, and uh, ushered in an era that has led us now towards tremendous future poverty in this country, at least uh, uh, in terms of budget. And I wonder from, from, from you... Uh, Mr. Greider, do you think it would have been different if we had the multiplicity of, of websites and news sources for you to drop the education of David Stockman into an environment such as today? Would it have died the way your book died? That's a really good question. It's, at first, I, I have reached a very similar conclusion and have tried to convince people because uh, that, that, that piece which ran in the Atlantic and I thought, this is how naive I was, uh, I thought as an editor at the Washington Post, we had pretty much told that story all year <laughs> long, and we had, and I could, in defense of myself, pull out the clippings where, in fact, what David Stockman was telling me, we had written, albeit not quoting David Stockman, but it was something about the nature of that article. It was a narrative from beginning to end that allowed people to see what was happening in a way news stories in newspapers do not that it was a sensational controversy and great uh, shame all around, and then politically uh, nothing happened. That's not quite the full story, I, I, and I've, I've had co many conversations with players over the years. People like Bob Dole and Russell Long and others in the Congress, having bought the Reagan package in summer, by the fall were already realizing that they had to do corrections, that it was way, it was disastrous if they didn't. So the germs of, of reaction were already there. Then my story hits, and they think, oh my God, it's worse than, you know, now, now it's public, we, we did. So they did pass corrective tax laws, and, uh, and they also whacked Social Security with a big tax, like an increase in the following year. But your main point is, is still right. The, the idea, the political idea of, of supply-side economics lived ever after for 25 years. And if you listen to the chatter today, it is still very much alive in the Republican Party, where they are, they are devout budget balancers, and they're, by God, going to cut the deficits. 
but cutting taxes doesn't have anything to do with that. That's what these guys are saying now. I mean, this is lunacy, right? But so the question you're asking is, uh, I've got a mall because um, my sober <laughs> education in that episode was, okay, you told pretty good piece of the truth, and that process that the press thinks is saves democracy is a whole lot weaker than we'd like to believe. That's, I'm not against the process. I'm part of it, and I will continue to be part of it. But it's the egotism of the press believing, pardon the expression, they are the bulwark of democracy that's wrong. They're not the bulwark of democracy. And they have moments when they are really have, can move the mountain. What is the bulwark of democracy? The people. Mm. The people. And I keep going back to that, and I know, Alex, that's a tiresome theme, but, but it really is. And, and I'm starting from a premise that the American idea, which I love and believe in, that we are on the road to something better. And it's a long road, and we're not there. And the idea that we have the model of democracy for the rest of the world is, is ludicrous and wrong. And so I, that's why I get a little smile with the Tea Party folks, because they're saying this, however crudely and sometimes wrong-headed they may be, um, they've got that spirit, and good for them. Hi, I'm Ron Weintraub. I'm just a, an informed citizen. I, I'm addressing this, I think, to uh, Mr. Greider. Um, Rachel, I believe, used a quote yesterday. He was prominence remains a little uncertain. That is, you may be entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And given the, the, uh, the business model that seems to have in the past supported fact-gathering, I was also very much impressed and, and influenced by John Carroll, who was here two or three years ago. And his point was that all of the, the current uh, media, the private media, the blogs, et cetera, are all derivative from original shoe leather reporting. So the question is, where is that going to be coming from? Where, what's going to pay for the, for the real facts that the public is going to use. What's going to pay for the the uh, the Department of uh, uh, of News Gathering in Kabul or Cairo or you name it? So how is this? How is the populace going to get their real facts? Well, I said I meant, I, I cited the, the the press as an example of monopoly capitalism, which probably is offensive in itself. Uh, but in the classic story of monopoly capitalism, when the monopoly is being broken up by other forces, economic forces, they turn to government and demand a subsidy to support them. And if you may have noticed that that's what some newspaper voices are doing now. They, they've proposed that, it, that the loss of, of this institution called the daily newspaper with its expertise, et cetera, and its ranks of reporters is so extreme that the government must somehow come to their rescue and subsidize them. And, they, and some of my colleagues at The Nation are great advocates of this, but I note that the, my old friend Nick Lemon, who's dean of the Columbia Journalism School, has advocated it. Uh, Leonard Downey, the retired executive editor of the Washington Post, has advocated it. 
and I, it makes me want to scream <laughs> because if you believe that democracy cannot function without the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Columbia Journalism School, then by all means, government should pay for it. We, the taxpayers, should be made to pay for it. But I promise you, down that road leads a nightmare of, of, for democracy. And uh, the first time a Muslim newspaper applies for a subsidy, the nightmare will be realized. Uh, it's just, it's, it's almost silly to even discuss. Um, I'm going to reach into history here a little bit. You all, I'm sure, know the historian Robert Darnton. I think he's at Harvard now, isn't he? No? I don't know. I don't think so. From, he was at Princeton many years. He's written a series of books, all of which I loved, about the, the, uh, the pre-revolutionary France and, the, and really their histories of publishing and book, book writing. And, and uh, <clears throat> if you're not familiar with him, then I, I, I can hardly go on. But he, he wrote an essay a few years back, uh, which I've drawn upon, uh, comparing the pre the ancien, the last days of the ancien regime with our present proliferation of media i urge you, it's in a book badly with a huge terribly bad title called george washington's false teeth it's a collection of it's a collection of essays on the enlightenment and he asks the question since the king owned the newspapers and there were all other publications were illegal and people got sent to jail if they got caught publishing uh, non-sanctified material, how did the French people communicate with one another before the revolution? And it wasn't just in Paris, although it was obviously grounded there, but all over the country, people rose up because they knew what was happening. And he describes in loving detail the, the various forms of communication which French people used in those days to get the news. And then he jumped to our modern technologies and sort of playfully compared the internet and some of the other devices we now have as a sort of high-tech version of very much the same phenomenon. That I am not suggesting that we are in a pre-revolutionary mode, but some of the elements are in fact similar. So that's a, that's a sort of vague answer to your question. The people will find ways to communicate with each other. And the quality of that communication will be as various and irregular and un uncertain as, as it is now. Yes. Uh, hi, I'm Joel Lingardio. I'm a mid-career student at the Kennedy School. I think um, last night there were two central questions. Um, Rachel Maddow asked, are we okay with getting our news from a person with a point of view? And then at the dinner later, uh, Professor Joseph Nye asked, is there any reason to be optimistic uh, that things will be better. Um, and he's using history as an example that throughout history, if you think journalism is ugly and bad now and politics are incivil, there's been worse cases throughout history. And usually they've coincided with great transformations, arguably for the better. So well, I haven't heard a lot of optimism from the panel, other than maybe Bill Greider. But I, I'm wondering if, if people can uh, uh, personally talk about is, is now a time, you know, optimism and, uh, and the question, is it okay, those are prefaced with fear. Do we fear the change? In order to be optimistic, we have to not fear. And in order to be okay 
with uh, the question Rachel asked, we have to not fear it. So I'm wondering if is now the time to hold on to uh, what we know, um, or is now the time to have faith that we can be optimistic and that um, embracing some of the things we might fear, it might turn out okay. Just more of a uh, philosophical I question. I think you've almost answered your own question. <laughs> it's pretty hard to imagine anyone would, you know, would say on this panel, and I may be not representing people. I don't think there are any, you know, pessimists. I think there's just a lot of worried people, and certainly a lot of of lack of clarity about how it's going to evolve, and what will be the good side of it, and what will be the bad side of it. And there will be there will be both. I mean, the the Ancien regime was was blown away and was followed by the Great Terror, and then came other things, you know? So, I mean, I, I guess... one the, version of the history. I don't, well, some, of us, some of us have a different view. Well, uh, you don't think the Great Terror happened? Well, okay. I mean, the point is that well, there's, this say, is... We, you could say World War One was followed by World War II. Well, you, you certainly can. <laughs> I guess... The, the point is that we are, I think we all recognize that we're at the beginning of a transformation that's genuinely a transformation, and uh, it's, it's progress, and, and certainly the, the path it will take is unclear, but that it's going to happen is without question. Well, let me, let me dissent from that. We are, we are indeed, at the, we are in a transformation. This country is, and not to mention the world. But this country, in my view, and I've written this, is it is in the pivotal turn of history, irrespective of how we feel about China or, or, uh, or this president or anything else. It's very profound. It's got six, eight elements to it, which we probably all would recognize. It's going to be very tough, and it is going to compel us to change as a people in many ways, most obviously in our manner of consumption. And I, my argument is that, indeed, on the other side, we have the possibility of becoming a better place in terms of all of our deepest values. But I have to say the political system that represents us, allegedly, in government is still in denial on those things, despite some meaningful gestures that this president has made. His, his work has been to restore the old order that just collapsed. And if you look at everything from his, and I'm not blaming Obama, I'm blaming the Congress, the political community as a whole still wants to tell the people it's okay, we're going to be all right. And one, they have different solutions of how we're going to be all right. But, but, and I, and I, I, just to broaden my provocation, the, the, particularly the mainstream media, as the bloggers call it, is a, is in, is in, complicit in that even though they've written a lot of good stuff they are they are they are likewise in denial I, well, I'd like to inject just a piece of optimism really quickly and I think it would be optimism for most people in this room which is that um, the young generation that we can uh, be concerned about their loud music and the way they act and maybe that they have a vapid understanding of politics or you know a, um, a, a skin deep education the youngest generation um, despite many people thought with the election of Obama that the people who voted for him for the first time would be Democrats for, for 30 years, um, because history showed that when you vote for the first time for a party, you stick to that party. Or those who first voted for George W. Bush um, would be Republicans for 30 years. 
young people are identifying as independents in greater numbers than any other age group. Um, they're not labeling themselves, and they're saying we want the opportunity to be able to look at the discussion and the debate and to determine each time. Um, there has to be some, now what happens with that, we'll see. But to me, that, that is something to be optimistic about in this new environment. Anyone else more have a last comment? I have a last Susan? quick question, if I may. Oh, yeah, sure, Sid. Thanks. Um, I, I couldn't leave. I tried to without um, speaking in defense of both a business model and change. As a 40-year journalist, I will say that without money, there is no mission. It's, it's that simple in, in today's society. But I really want to ask a very minor question about change, because I think we, I saw a small sign of just how much the traditional world has changed in journalism um, yesterday. And if you saw at the cover of the Week in Review in the New York Times, had a Leonard piece that was really a deconstruction of what do we do about deficits and what do we do about revenue, there was an interactive game. You could color in blocks there and, and make choices about how to both raise revenue and decrease the deficit. Or you could go online and do it, which I am certain that many thousands of people have done. And I would like to ask David and Bill whether you think that in any greater extent serves democracy and furthers it, or to a lesser extent, than the 150-word treatise on the reducing the deficit. David? Yeah, absolutely. Those kinds of interacts and uh, uh, exercises are extremely helpful. And uh, it reminds me of something that was done in Indiana about 20 years ago around uh, redistricting, in which uh, there was a large-scale experiment that went on in uh, middle schools and high schools where they were given maps and said, yep. okay, redistrict. And people saw how it happened and had a clear impact then on how the state actually redistricted in, in, Indi in Indiana. Uh, similar programs were then done in Iowa. And these were largely led by uh, local media. So these kinds of interactive exercises, especially around the debt, which is a true long-term crisis for this country, can be very helpful if then people um, uh, express to elected officials in one way or another um, what kinds of hard choices they are willing to accept when people aren't willing to accept hard choices. Um, but we're not going to get anywhere. Bill. I agree completely. And, I, and somebody, one of the... One of the uh, questions raise the point of efforts that are not somehow recognized as news just disappear, at least in terms of the public dialogue. And so there, there's, a, there's a missing link here where, and it's maybe just in everybody's head of what's news, what, what the times, you could take that, that example and say, well, maybe two months from now, they follow up somehow and try to just discern what their readers decided or what, you know what I mean, measure, and then get it expressed as just, you know, it's another set of opinions about what ought to happen, but it's, but it's now enriched the, the political dialogue. And five years ago, I posit the New York Times would have not done that. They certainly, I agree with that. The yeah, thing is, so I mean, one thing we haven't really talked about here is actually how all of this is happening against the backdrop of people losing faith in so many fundamental institutions, whether it's the you know Wall Street or government or the media or for that matter the Catholic Church. 
And we're talking about these changes as though, you know, that, that they're not going to threaten the mission, but some of them do. Technology is great, and, you know, if people can communicate with, you know, can be interactive and so forth, that can all be great. You can deliver the, the news better. What's worrying me is that the technology is starting to, and the, and the campaigning is starting to overtake the institution so that the missions of the institutions are being, uh, are being sort of, discredited. For, you, you see that in the media. The problem that I have with Rachel Maddow, for example, talking about this is kind of the new world of the media, of, of you know, people getting their information from you know, opinionated people, even if they're very smart opinions, is that it started to infect the print world with this branding of reporters, so that the reporter is sort of more important than the, than the story being told. And, um, and that's where you get a lot of people not writing about policy because it becomes sort of you and your snarky little, little take on something. It's really astonishing to me how often I talk to younger reporters and this whole idea that what we all grew up with, that journalism is, you know, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comforted, they just think is the most bizarre thing. It's all about, you know, just the sniding a little comment or whatever. And there's, there's not this sense that the mission of journalism is bigger than they are, and it's going to be here hopefully long after they're dead. Just like in Congress, right now I don't see as many people who sort of have the sense that the Congress itself, not necessarily the two-party system or all these other details of it, but the Congress itself, the whole idea of a democratic government is bigger than they are was there before they were alive and was going to be there long after they were dead. And that's actually what, what concerns me. We've come to the end of our time. I want to thank all of the panelists. Again, Bill Grider, congratulations for the Nine Prize. I want to say a particular thanks to uh, the Shorensteins. I'm very glad that you all were able to be with us. Uh, we miss your father. And I know that if he uh, had been present at this, he would have had his two cents to say about it, no doubt. Uh, we're very glad to have you all with us. I uh, hope that you'll come to other Shorenstein Center events. These are issues that are very important to our country and uh, that we are engaging. Thank you very much, and uh, we hope we'll see you again.